The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. We're excited to announce a brand new forum learning opportunity called Forum Professional Development Labs. Our Professional Development Labs, or PDL for short, are half-day interactive learning experiences intended to develop professional competencies that support leaders in reaching the next level in their DEI leadership. Unlike traditional workshop sessions, PDLs are goal-oriented and include personal and professional action and accountability planning for next-level leadership. Unique to the PDL learning experience, each PDL includes action planning breakout sessions. The action planning breakout sessions give individuals a chance to participate in small group work that results in having their own goal-oriented action plan to take what they learned at the PDL and apply it in their workplace or organization. We're kicking off this brand new, exciting learning opportunity with our first PDL called Engaging Religious Diversity in the Workplace, Building Your Interfaith Strategy and Skill Set. Join keynote speaker Ibu Patel of Interfaith Youth Corps and other special guests for this brand new, action-oriented, half-day learning experience. The PDL will be held on November 8, 2021 and will be offered as a virtual conference format, complete with breakout sessions. If you've enjoyed the Forum Workplace Inclusion Annual Conference or you've always been interested in attending it, then you don't want to miss this new opportunity. For more information, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Donate to the forum. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to today's special Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast, Using Innovative Simulation Strategies to Dismantle Systemic Racism, continued with Dr. Samreen Vora and Brittany Dolan of Children's Minnesota. I'm Ben Rue, Program Manager here at the Forum. This is a continuation of our August webinar, Using Innovative Simulation Strategies to Dismantle Systemic Racism. If you haven't watched that yet, I would highly recommend that you do. There were so many great questions that we weren't able to get to during that webinar, so Dr. Vora and Brittany were gracious enough to come back and answer a few of them. So let's get started. Thank you both so much for being back, Dr. Bora and Brittany. Um, I really enjoyed the last web or the webinar, and I'm really happy that we were able to continue this conversation because there were so many great questions and so much more information that we weren't able to get to. So thank you both for being back with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, definitely. My, our pleasure. So let's just hop right in. So um, we, these are... So questions that we, you know, we weren't able to get through to in the webinar, but also questions that people sent to you afterwards via email and just, you know, points that 
you know, wanted to get at. So the first, like hopping right in. So you mentioned in the webinar bias mitigation strategies that were used as part of your simulation sessions. Could you share more about these strategies? Like what they, like what are they and what is the evidence of their effectiveness? Absolutely. This is one of the things, you know, as we designed our simulations and our curriculum and we looked at other implicit bias trainings around the country, one of the things we really wanted to be mindful of is picking things and doing trainings that we knew had some evidence to show their effectiveness. And so what we ran across in the psychosocial literature that has actually been adopted into a variety of places across the healthcare field as well, like the Institute of Health Healthcare Improvement um, and other, the Aspen Institute these bias mitigation strategies that have in a variety of studies have shown uh, you know, effectiveness in changing people's behaviors. And we focused in on a few that we use during our simulations and that we helped people learn and practice. There's others that we didn't necessarily focus in on that can be done individually as well. So maybe I'll give a couple of examples. You know, one example that we didn't cover in our webinar or use in our simulations is an easy one for people to do called counter stereotype imaging where you purposefully identify, look at a member group that may um, have either systemic racism, right? We think about a, the black member group or um, a member group that you know you might have biases against. And you do, you look at images of, from that group that replace your automate, automatic biases in your brain. So for example, going and looking at pictures of really successful black males, right? To change the automation that has been built into us by being part of this American society growing up here, right? Uh, so you would go look at pictures of Obama or Oprah and use that as a bias mitigation strategy. And over time, that's been shown that you slowly start to shift what you associate with that group automatically. Other strategies that we did use in our simulation, um, one really great one was individuation. So, and it's a little bit different than, right? So the counter stereotypic imaging, you're focusing on a group that you think you may have biases um, towards, and you're trying to shift that in your mind, shift that automation in your mind. Individuation is actually taking people from any member group and thinking of them as individuals and not part of this bigger group, right? So you, in healthcare particularly, it's to be very mindful um, to see patients as individuals instead of as a member of a stigmatized group, and then create that patient-centered care, create some partnership building with them, which is another bias mitigation strategy, right? So for example, you know, there's a lot of bias in our society and, and within healthcare, there's been data that's shown that we're less likely to believe when uh, patients of color, particularly black patients, report pain we're less likely to give pain medication. So now using the bias mitigation strategy, knowing that data, even if you say, okay, I don't believe that and I don't feel that way, but when you go into a patient's room, you know that data, right? And you know there is that type of bias that happens, then to actively use the bias mitigation strategy and use individuation. I'm gonna look at this patient and hear their history and their story, look at their injury or what they're complaining about and practice that bias mitigation strategy in that moment. Um, so those are two examples of, you know, and there's a variety of other strategies. We, we talked a little bit about mindfulness is another bias mitigation strategy. Another really good one is perspective taking. I actually use this in my daily life too, and it helps with your significant others or your children to really just take a pause and do some perspective taking. I often use it with my 13 year olds and I think, okay, I know she's giving me an attitude, but if I use perspective taking and I think, 
you know, what is she feeling now? And from her perspective, what did she just experience this causing her to react this way? Uh, it's really helpful in that way and really helps to mitigate some of our own biases that we bring into that picture, right? So in that example, you know, on my bias coming in, my 13-year-old's really immature, she doesn't get this, but then I do some perspective taking and I'm like, actually, if I take a moment to think from her perspective, similar in the healthcare setting, right? Do some perspective taking from the patient's perspective, like, gosh, yes, they are loud and screaming and if I do some perspective taking, they have a child that's dying. Maybe that's what I would be doing in that situation. Or they just experienced as they walked in from the front desk, you know, they were stopped as the black father and saw multiple other white patients walk right through, right? And they bring that experience up. And so doing some perspective taking can really help me then again, do some partnership building and understand the patient's perspective or the caregiver's perspective better. So those are some examples of bias mitigation strategies that we incorporated into our simulation that can be incorporated into daily living for a lot of people as they're on their anti-racism journey. Um, <clears throat> and really deliberately practicing those can change behaviors that are related to our implicit biases. Thank you so much, Dr. Vora. Um, and yeah, that's such a good point. Perspective is so important. Um, Brittany, is there anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, I think that the main point to remember with any of these strategies is you're trying to slow your thought process down. And so giving yourself enough time to counter some of those snap assumptions, that fast thinking that that is embedded in all of us, um, just different things that are embedded in all of us. So all of the strategies Dr. Bora listed are things that you can integrate into your daily life that just helps you get that extra time to pause before reacting. Thank you. And can you share what outcomes you were able to measure with the simulations you did? And if you were able to see the impact on your participants' behaviors? Like yeah, we'd be happy to. So we looked very intentionally at what outcomes um, we could measure before we did this intervention, our first intervention with this course. Um, most importantly, we wanted to partner with our family satisfaction survey results. And at our organization, we stratify those by race as well so that we can further understand any disparities that are uh, existing across the organization. And so that was really important to us is to look at the um, translation to the bedside. So uh, clinical nurses and providers coming in through our course, then going back to their um, bedside work and what is the actual experience of families that are getting the care. So that is something that we're still actively tracking, um, but early indications um, are showing us uh, that there is an impact um, for families. And we, we are looking primarily at um, black families because our both of our scenarios were focused on the experiences of two black families um, simulated cases that we had designed and the biases that those families face. Um, but what we've noticed so far is that the, the family satisfaction scores in general are actually improving across the board, um, but specifically when stratified by race as well. We also um, are looking at participant perceptions. So we've looked into the literature in uh, social psychology literature and used the internal and external motivation scale, which helps um, understand how uh, prejudices are um, enacted. Is it an internally motivated um, 
person to, to not um, be prejudiced or is it more of an external motivation? And so those um, that scale helps us understand we did it at three different time points, pre-intervention, immediately post the course, and then follow-up three-month survey. Um, and in conjunction with that, we even looked at a situational judgment test as well. So something that we designed to measure, you know, what is someone's perceived behavior in this scenario? If they observe um, biased statements during a conversation with a colleague, um, what would, how would they respond, for example? So those two measures helped us understand the participants' perceptions, as well as them reporting at the three-month follow-up what, were they using these bias mitigation strategies? Um, and what we've seen so far is that uh, the participants are using it overwhelmingly. So about 97% of those who've responded um, are using the bias mitigation strategies at the bedside. We also looked at several other um, measures that we're still analyzing, um, but things that people might consider in their own workplace. Um, so at at our institution, we have behavioral contracts and deny entries that sometimes are applied for families if there is a concern about um, who is visiting the patient or the behavior of the family member or visitor who's visiting the patient. And this can be really biased when it comes to who is getting these behavioral contacts, contracts or deny entries. Um, and so our organization has a commitment to make sure that these are applied more equitably um, and only when necessary. And so that's another piece that we're looking at stratified by race to see what the impact might be to those families and, and those experiences. Samarine, anything that you would add around the outcomes um, piece? No, I think that was a great summary. We tried to look at a lot of different pieces to see where are we impacting things. Uh, the only thing I would say is you know, as we said, our cases did focus on black families because those were the cases we kind of designed for our simulations. But that isn't to say, you know, I, I think what we were, what we, when we center on the margins, we make things better for all patients and families. And so, as we saw in our results in our family satisfaction surveys too, is that's what happened. And you know, so it's not to say there aren't tons of other, you know, we're talking about racial bias, but there's so many other places, right, gender, um, and just so many places where patients experience that kind of bias or discrimination really at times. And so it's not to dismiss any of that or not recognize that. And I would say, you know, when we call out this kind of racial bias, we get into in general, it's really what Brittany said earlier, right, we get into, well, how do our biases work? How do our lived experiences contribute to these biases? And where might they be and to get people to do the practice of the strategies not necessarily for one specific group but in general to say how do I identify slow down my thinking process identify my bias and then mitigate it in, in my actions thank you so much for that and you know and thank you for the work that you're doing I know we mentioned this uh before pre-recording but you know my mother who is a black woman is going through a bit of an issue with facing racial bias with a now ex-doctor, um, which is uh, just so, well, shocking to hear in this day and age. But yeah, just the per the perceptions they had about her and her perceptions going in about like, oh, this can't be that. This can't be racial bias. This is an educated doctor. This is who's been taking care of me for years now. Um, and yeah, it's just so important that even 
educated people, <laughs> like doctors, you can continue to keep learning and you have to learn to identify your own bias. Um, and Absolutely. Yeah, this is, so yeah, this, I, you know, this training is, I feel uh, more important than ever these days, especially with COVID going around and like, there's a great deal of racial bias when it comes to how different COVID cases are being handled as we, as we are aware, um, the, how it's affecting different groups so differently. And a part of that very well could be that, you know, some certain patients aren't being believed, like the case of my mother, when they say that they are having these symptoms um, because of racial bias against them or against their racial group. Or also in the case of my mother, there's bias towards women too in the healthcare. Yes. So it's just like, um, you know, which is surprising because this doctor in point was also a woman. Um, but yeah, just, but it's still just so the intersectionality is just so important yes. that this training goes it, start, it definitely starts with race, but yeah, there's de definitely a lot more that can be tied into this. Um, now, um, so back on track. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, and to, to add to, to thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that, Ben, because for people to hear the real stories is really important, right? And I would say that not just, it, and you hit on a couple of things that are really important where, you know, we think, well, because I'm a woman, I can't be biased against women. Not yeah. true, right? Because we all grow up with certain frames in our systems and our society that we then internalize as well. And so that's important to remember. And then you talk about physicians and providers and healthcare professionals in general. I think it's not just that, um, well, we're so educated, but it's also, it's hard for healthcare professionals to see it in themselves because most people are really well-intentioned too, yeah. right? So especially in the healthcare field, we almost everybody I've spoken to is like, yep, I became a nurse, a doctor, a social worker because I want to help people. And so then you're now you're saying, wait a minute, I'm harming people. Like that's a really hard pill to swallow yeah. and understandably so. Like we absolutely don't want to be harming people. And so then recognizing that bias is even harder, right? So well-intentioned and then well-educated and then compound that with maybe I carry one of those identities. So of course I can't be biased against that identity and that's just not true. And it's really hard to kind of, you know, put all those things together. So thank you for sharing that and kind of putting it into context of why we're doing these simulations, right? We're trying to get people to self-reflect and be like, hmm, aha. Yeah, well, you're welcome. And I mean, it's even more, yeah, the, the whole situation is even more upsetting because my mom herself is a nurse. <laughs> so there was a lot of her being like, you know, you know, I know these, I know these doctors, they're well intentioned, no, like, no one goes into the industry that they're in wanting to be like, oh, I'm going to deny service to these people, or I'm going to provide inadequate service to someone like you don't go into the met, like, yeah, they don't go into the medical field right. to do that. But it definitely it's still happening and it's it's so it's really great that you know there's this training to help people address their biases and work through that um so, so that's my personal rant <laughs> um so uh yeah it's just like i said thank you for this work and it's you know and it's not only important out like in the bedside in the hospital but it, you know it's important outside as well in like regular daily life like can you give us example some examples of how these biases mitigation strategies and simulation can be used outside of the bedside care or even outside of healthcare setting in general 
Yeah, we'd be happy to. There, there are several opportunities where I'm, I'm sure some of the forum listeners have have done DEI work in general, and, and we would say you could use simulation in those instances. So, for example, hiring or interview processes um, are a great opportunity to design cases where bias may be slipping in and have people pause and, and start to use these mitigation strategies. You know, consider perspective taking, consider emotional regulation um, during that interview when maybe, you know, you're, you're interviewing somebody who doesn't hold the same identities as you or has, um, has just maybe said something biased to how are, you know, how are you reacting to those conversations? Um, and so hiring is probably a, a big one. Um, any customer interaction or um, even office interactions between colleagues um, could be simulated and using the same kind of structure. And I think the, the main thing we want to get across is, is these bias mitigation strategies can be used in your personal or professional life. Um, just like Samreen was saying earlier, I mean, perspective taking is a great one for personal life. Uh, I, I use it with my family often as well. So, you know, thinking about integrating it into your day to day. Um, but if people are interested in doing, you know, a more formal structured course that uses some of what we've described, it also could be used in other settings. Uh, anything that you would add to that? Yeah, I think it's great that you brought up anytime you've got people that are interfacing with customers or, you know, outside of your company to train them to be prepared to be able to think about those things, right? Um, any, you could simulate any kind of, um, group settings as well, right? If you've got group meetings, it's not uncommon for women to be interrupted in meetings. It's not uncommon to, you know, there's a lot of different biases that can come out in that space. And so to do some simulations to get people to slow down their thinking, use a bias mitigation strategy would be a great way to utilize this in an office setting as well. And I think one great, we've gotten a couple of people who've reached out with some great ideas of what they're doing as well. And so I can share, I was going to look up what it was, but somebody had reached out and said, hey, we're going to try some of this for people who are doing consenting for research studies. So we know there's a big, you know, in certain communities, there's a huge distrust of the medical system. And when you go out, like, so when you mentioned COVID earlier, there's a huge disparity in care and that then leads to further distrust. And so how do you then make sure you're getting people in research studies that are um, people of color and diverse so that we can get the right data to make sure we're treating people equitably, that we have the right information we need to do that. And so somebody had thought about using simulation to train their um, people that are going to be consenting families. How do you interact with those families to help answer some of those questions about distrust? So I think there's a variety of ways, whether at the bedside or in the healthcare field in general or outside of healthcare across the areas where you're doing trainings. I would say another way um, of incorporating even a low fidelity, just role playing. I know a lot of, you know, there's a lot of implicit bias trainings where you just kind of listen to someone, share a lot of information, but incorporating some of the interactives and role playing um, would be great if you're doing any kind of implicit bias trainings within your organizations, trying to include at least some piece of it to be a simulated encounter really pushes people. The goal is to make people uncomfortable and to make them push them to actually practice what they're going to say. Because it's easy for me to be like, oh, this is what I would say in this situation. It's much harder to actually say it and then say, oh, that sounds awkward or oh, that didn't quite come out and then practice it. 
practice it again. Uh, so I think that's really where we would push people to practice those bias mitigation strategies, try to incorporate them in a way that you're getting people to actually use them. It's a muscle, right? Build that muscle. Practice does make perfect. Um, and yeah, definitely, it's, if you don't use it, you lose it. But simulated practice of these strategies can, can help change this discriminatory or biased behaviors. But I imagine those facilitating these types of simulations would need some practice as well. Um, I mean, I eat a doctor. <laughs> can you uh, share? Can you share more about how you prepared your facilitators for the simulation sessions? Yeah, we'd be happy to. We were pretty intentional with um, with designing our facilitator development uh, program. We recognized, especially in our own setting, that we had some people with facilitation experience, perhaps not ENI facilitation experience, but um, they they did other kind of education work. But then we also had people who had never facilitated before, um, let alone simulations, uh, and and had a little more robust equity and inclusion background. So we really saw it as um, uh, multiple objectives when we brought this facilitation group together. We wanted to make sure we had a shared mental model around systemic racism, implicit bias, and really that foundational knowledge um, on health equity as well to make sure that everybody had a common language and could, could discuss together as facilitators um, and really understanding like the white racial frame and how that shows up in our institution. Um, and additionally, we wanted to give people that practice. So just like we just talked about with our learners um, going through and being able to practice things um, and try again, we also wanted our facilitators to have that opportunity. So we gave them opportunities to practice in a simulated setting um, and really, you know, give that opportunity to pause a, a simulated class and give feedback and then restart the scenario and even challenging microaggressions that might come up during the scenarios because we we knew that that was likely to happen right white fragility was going to come up um, and so how would how would they as facilitators navigate that and giving them that opportunity to practice um, we also were really intentional about ongoing support, just recognizing the emotional labor of this work, especially for our facilitators of color. Uh, we wanted to make sure that there were regular check-ins. So our co-facilitator pairs always checked in with each other at the end of a class um, and debriefed. And then we had regular large group debriefs uh, and an as needed um, debriefings offered just to kind of help people process what may have come up during those classes. So Maureen, anything you would add about our facilitator development? Well, I guess I would add just the fact that we were deliberate about who they were, who we asked to kind of do the facilitation. We wanted to make sure they were people that either had started their own work or were willing to do the work. And we tried to be deliberate about the diversity of our facilitators, which you know sometimes can be challenging. You might be asking people of color. You, I never want to put people in a position where they're feeling like they're re-traumatized, right? Because like Brittany said, they might see microaggressions in these training sessions and to, be, to have to address them. And so we were very deliberate about who we asked we also made sure we provided support for all our facilitators, specifically our facilitators of color, and we, we partnered them. 
up, right? And and said, okay, we, we were very explicit, which when I say this to outside organization, people are like, really? Like you called that out? And we're like, yeah, that was the only way I think we were able to be really successful as we said, you know what, this particular point, really the white facilitator should be the one to, to call this out or make this point because it lands better. <clears throat> or, you know, we, we don't want to put that um, onus on the facilitator of color or, or that sort of thing. So we, were, we tried to balance things and be very deliberate and explicit in our discussions with the people that would be facilitating these sessions because it was really important to us to protect our facilitators. I would add that we also, it was really important because these were live simulations. We actually had um, professional actors that were being the caregivers and same same rules applied there where we were very deliberate about making sure because they were you know although they were playing a role they were still bringing their whole selves right so we had a black father that was playing in a case that you know it was during the george floyd trial actually that some of our cases were going on and to hear from our actor um our actors saying right they're they're bringing their whole selves their black male identity that they walk around every day with and so we were very deliberate about providing a space for debriefing providing an opportunity if they ever needed a timeout or they needed to step out or they needed to not do that that day uh really kind of giving them that liberty it was really important as well to us so. thank you so much for sharing that um and Sorry to say this is our last question because I really enjoyed this conversation and um, having you both back. So thank you both for coming back. But I think this is a really great question to end on, um, which is, do you have recommendations for those who may have more limited resources and how they can bring this to their own organizations? I think that, you know, really trying not to get overwhelmed by, you know, we think when we, even in the healthcare field and outside, for sure, if you're not used to simulation, even that word sometimes can be like, oh, I can't do that. But really thinking there's all, there's a whole variety. It doesn't have to be super high complicated, right? You set up a little space that like recreates a certain environment, two chairs or desk, right? If it's an office environment. And, you know, we, I know we said we hired professional actors, but role play, right? I think the professional actors does bring this level of of, you know, raising your cortisol and your stress hormone and really gets you to a place where you practice how you would feel in the real environment. But there's ways of doing that if you don't have those resources, right? You role play or you get, you train somebody to play a role. Uh, so maybe someone that's unknown to the people that are doing the simulation, sometimes even that gets that gets to that objective. And you, you know, the fidelity, like the realism can be pretty, you know, sometimes that's more important than having any kind of high technology or that sort of thing, right? Just see how much you can recreate the situation and then push people to actually take a, do a fiction contract and do this with all our simulations and say, okay, I recognize this isn't real, but I'm going to buy into the reality and act as I would in the real space. And the literature has shown that if people buy into that fiction contract and you create that space, they actually do act as they would in a real environment. So I would push people to not get overwhelmed just by the word simulation or thinking about creating a simulation and you know, use the resources you have and try to be creative with that to really get to that objective of having people be in the space, get uncomfortable and practice strategies to mitigate their bias. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, I think that the, the most important thing is um, also kind of pushing people to really use the words that they would use. Um, so that fiction contract is really critical. Um, often people will say well i would say this in this situation and you're like great all right let's let's time in and try it out right so really even if you're doing role play in a in a course where people are are partnered or something 
really pushing them to to use the words that they would use in the real life and 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 try to um, really buy into that fiction contract as Samreen described because then they can they can try these bias mitigation strategies on and and really get the words into their own uh, language. Um, so I think that that is key, really not being intimidated by the sim as as you both have said. Well, great. Thank you both so much again for coming back. And yeah, I'm always just so thrilled to have you both here. And it's always just a pleasure working with you and learning from you. Um, and just ha thanks for coming back and having this awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Vora and Brittany, for coming back for this wonderful podcast and answering these important questions. And thank you to our listeners for joining. If you'd like to learn more about using simulation strategies to fight systemic racism in healthcare, you can email both Dr. Vora and Brittany at samreen.vora at children'smn.org and brittany.dellon at children'smn.org. New episodes of the Forum Podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. Episodes can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion Podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.